Let's turn in the Holy Scriptures together to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. We're going to read the first 23 verses of the chapter. Our text is verses 11 through 18. Given the length of that text, I'm not going to reread it a second time. John chapter 20, beginning at verse 1. The first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early, when it was yet dark, unto the sepulcher, and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulcher. Then she runneth, and cometh to Simon Peter, and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved, and saith unto them, They have taken away the Lord out of the sepulchre, and we know not where they have laid him. Peter therefore went forth, and that other disciple, and came to the sepulchre. So they ran both together, and the other disciple did outrun Peter, and came first to the sepulchre. And he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying, yet went he not in. Then cometh Simon Peter following him, and went into the sepulchre, and seeth the linen clothes lie, and the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. Then went in also that other disciple, which came first to the sepulchre, and he saw and believed. For as yet they knew not the scripture that he must rise again from the dead. Then the disciples went away again unto their own home. But Mary stood without at the sepulcher weeping. And as she wept, she stooped down and looked into the sepulcher, and seeth two angels in white sitting, the one at the head and the other at the feet, where the body of Jesus had lain. And they say unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? She saith unto them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have laid him. And when she had thus said, she turned herself back, and saw Jesus standing, and knew not that it was Jesus. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, why weepest thou? Whom seekest thou? She, supposing him to be the gardener, saith unto him, Sir, if thou have borne him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus saith unto her, Mary. She turned herself and saith unto him, Rabboni, which is to say, Master. Jesus saith unto her, Touch me not, for I am not yet ascended to my father. But go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my Father and your Father, and to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came and told the disciples that she had seen the Lord, and that he had spoken these things unto her. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. And when he had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Then said Jesus to them again, Peace be unto you, as my Father hath sent me, even so send I you. 
And when he had said this, he breathed on them and saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. We read God's word to that point this morning. Our text, as I said, is verses 11 through 18. The account of Mary Magdalene at the tomb, the first resurrection day morning. I'm not going to reread that section. Beloved of God, through the eyes of Mary Magdalene, we come to the tomb this morning and view the greatest miracle that God has ever done in the history of this world, the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. The resurrection of the Lord is the hope of the child of God. It is the victory of the child of God in the truth of Christ's resurrection, we have the assurance that death has been conquered, that sin has in fact been paid for. Death has no hold over God's people. This is why we cannot separate Good Friday from Resurrection Sunday. The cross from the resurrection. The light of the resurrection shines so bright that even the darkness of Calvary is lighted by its light. That's why, without even really consciously thinking about it, we always view the cross of Christ through the lenses of the resurrection. We speak of the cross as victory over sin, conquering death. But we only do that because we know that he rises again on the third day. If that was not the case, the cross would not be that for us. The cross would be condemnation. It would be not victory. It would be defeat. But it's the fact that he rises again from the dead that shows that sin has been paid for there, that death has in fact been conquered. The grave has no hold over us. The resurrection signals our victory, including the victory that is attained for us in the cross. Which is why, of course, believing in that resurrection, Easter Sunday becomes such a celebration. That's why it's characterized by joy, by hope, by gladness. That's why all down throughout church history, Easter Sunday is the climax of the religious calendar. All of the days on the religious calendar find their end point here in Resurrection Sunday. That makes it so striking then to notice that on the first Easter morning, You find not joy and celebration at first, but you find tears and sorrow and despair and confusion. As Mary Magdalene is all alone weeping at the tomb. She doesn't know 
at that point what we know. We read John 19, Friday evening, understanding what it meant through the lenses of the resurrection. We read John 19 knowing what happens in John 20. We come to Easter Sunday morning already knowing his victory in the resurrection. She doesn't. She doesn't see in that cross hope and victory. She sees death and defeat and despair. And she sees in that tomb only confusion at this point. But don't be so quick to think that she's so different from you, beloved. Though we know the truth of the resurrection, though we confess it and though we view all Scripture in the understanding of it, are there not times in your life and in mine where we act like we don't know the resurrection? And where what's needed is the kingly voice of Jesus Christ, the same voice that she needed to call us by name with its sovereign, irresistible power again and to shine the light of its truth upon us that we might live in its hope, its joy, its victory, acknowledging in all aspects of our life that He is the risen Lord. Mary meets the risen Lord is the theme this morning. Let's notice first Mary's sorrow, second Mary's hope, and then finally Mary's response. Mary meets the risen Lord. Mary's sorrow, Mary's hope, and Mary's response. Our text, beloved, is not the first time that Mary Magdalene has been at the tomb resurrection Sunday morning. Mary, along with the other women, were at the tomb first that glorious Sunday morning. Verse 1 of chapter 20 tells us that the first day of the week cometh Mary Magdalene early when it was yet dark unto the sepulcher and seeth the stone taken away from the sepulcher. Mary probably got there first, but then the other women gathered too, and when they arrived, they all saw that the stone had been rolled away. Verse 1 tells us they came while it was still dark. They could tell in the darkness of just before the crack of dawn that the stone had been rolled away, but it was too dark to see anything inside that tomb. Mary is discharged by the women to run back into the city not that far away and to go tell Peter and John that the stone has been rolled away and it looks like somebody has perhaps taken his body. The other women stayed. And then the sun starts to come up and so they see the angels and are invited to look inside where the light is now able to shine and that's where the accounts in the other Gospels come in of the women entering into the tomb and seeing it empty. And the angel tells those women, he's not here, but he's risen. Come see the place where the Lord lay. And then he sends them back to the city and says, go tell the rest of the disciples what happened. So all the women leave and go back to the city of Jerusalem. In the meantime, Mary Magdalene has told Peter and John that they saw the stone rolled away. And Peter and John are making their way out to the tomb with Mary Magdalene along with them. 
Peter outruns John, or rather John outruns Peter, but John and Peter outrun Mary. They get to the tomb first. And there is what is recorded in the second section of John chapter 20. Peter and John coming to the tomb by themselves. They see the grave clothes. They understand what's happened to a certain extent. And they run excitedly back to the city. And Mary Magdalene, who was following behind them from the city, now comes to the tomb. And now that's the scene of our text. You get the sense then that the whole first part of the account of John 20 is full of activity and this resurrection morning at the first, there's all kinds of activity going on. People are running here and there and that's the word that's used through the account, isn't it? Run. Verse 2, Mary runs. Peter and John are running back. Verse 4, running back and forth. Everybody's excited and yet there's still confusion and wondering what's going on. And then all of a sudden, you get to our text, and Mary is at the tomb by herself, and all the activity ceases. It's just this one woman by herself, alone at the tomb. No more running, no more activity. And what happens is kind of like what happens for all of us when, say, we have a loved one who passes away. And there's all kinds of activity at first. There's planning for the funeral, and there's going to the funeral home, and going here and there to plan, and the family's coming in, and there's all this activity. And then all of a sudden, it all stops after the funeral is over, and then you're alone, the spouse of the one who's died, and it's just you, and all of the flood of emotion now that's been in your soul, but with all the activity has not been able to come out now, it all comes out. And the pain and the reality of it hits home when the activity ceases and you're all alone. That's what's happening to Mary Magdalene here now as she's alone at the tomb, weeping. Verse 11, Mary stood at the sepulcher, weeping. It all comes out, the confusion and the turmoil that's inside of her. We don't know a lot about Mary of Magdala. That's what her name means, Mary Magdalene. But we know enough about her to understand why she is here weeping at the tomb. We know from Mark 16, verse 9, that Jesus had cast out seven demons from her. Can you imagine that? What a terrible experience that must have been. Seven demons inside of her. We don't know exactly how that was manifest in her life, what those seven demons did to her, but from reading the rest of the New Testament, it's not a pleasant experience. Sometimes when people are possessed by demons, they throw themselves into fires. Other times they appear to go mad. Some would begin taunting passers-by without any control over the words they're saying. Mary had seven of these demons inside of her, and they were cast out In an instant by her Lord, she's grateful to him. She loves him. But that's not all that he has done for her. Mary must have understood, at least on a simple level, that this Jesus was the Redeemer, not only of her mind and of her body, but also of her soul. 
She must have understood something of the gospel of the forgiveness of sins as Jesus applied that gospel to her repentant. Perhaps it was sin in her life that opened her up to be possessed by these seven demons. It's often assumed that Mary Magdalene was a prostitute. That's possible from Scripture. Not certain, but possible. Whatever the case, her liberation from the Lord was also a liberation from the guilt of her sin. And though she didn't know how that sin was taken care of, she doesn't understand that yet. She knew that it was and that he had forgiven her and that her guilt was gone and that he was the Son of God himself. Because of all of this, Mary's dedication to the Lord Jesus was unparalleled. Children, how did Jesus have food to eat during his public ministry? He was going around all kinds of places, teaching and preaching. Sometimes he did miracles and made food come seemingly out of nowhere or be produced beyond what it could produce. But how did he get his food normally? He didn't have the kind of job where you get money. He was ministering. He was preaching and teaching. Well, the answer is that there was a small band of women who followed the Lord and the disciples around everywhere he went teaching and preaching. Some of them had some wealth and they ministered to his and to their needs. Luke 8 verses 2 and 3 tells us about this and tells us that this Mary Magdalene was one of the women who was part of this small band. It was her joy in her life to give herself completely over to the service of the Lord and of the other disciples. Mary's faith in the Lord Jesus Christ was complete. It was personal and it was vital. It was living You can see that personal aspect of her faith come out in our text in verse 13, especially in contrast to what she says in verse 2. In verse 2 of the chapter, when she first runs back to Jerusalem to tell Peter and John that the stone has been rolled away, she reports it this way, verse 2, they have taken away the Lord out of the sepulcher. And we know not where they have laid him. But now, when she is alone by the tomb and the angel asks her why she's weeping, she responds with almost the exact same phrase, except with one small difference. Verse 13, Woman, why weepest thou? And she saith unto them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I know not where they have laid him. The first time she reports it, it's in the third person, the Lord. But here when she's alone at the tomb and the setting is more intimate, it's my Lord. I don't know where they have taken him. It's a personal faith. There's a lesson here for us. Be careful about judging the people of God. Some are not as good at as others at revealing how personal their faith is in a public setting. 
like Mary Magdalene in verse 2. But then you get them in a more private, intimate setting. And the personal nature of their faith comes out like it did with Mary. My Lord, my Lord. Her faith was real. It was vital. It was living. It was personal. Why am I weeping? He's my Lord and he's gone. That's why I weep. But I don't understand what's going on. She's confused. You can see Mary's faith in that she was one of the few close observers of the events of the crucifixion. When most were not willing to come anywhere close to Calvary when he was hanging there upon the cross, she and these other women, though they didn't come all the way right next to him, they came. When all the other disciples abandoned him, they did not abandon him. Mary, a part of him. Luke 23, verse 49, and all his acquaintance and the women that followed him from Galilee stood afar off beholding these things. She wanted to see, she wanted to be with him even if at from a distance. A few verses later there in Luke 23, we learn that she was still waiting around when they took his body off of the cross and laid him in the tomb. She wanted to see where they were going to lay him because she had the plan that she was going to come back and she was going to anoint the body. She wanted to make sure that he was properly taken care of. She loved him. She cared for him. She didn't understand what in the world was happening, but she loved him. And now here she finds herself at the tomb by herself. And all the confusion of all the disciples is hers, but probably hers a bit more. And her tears flow down her exhausted and troubled face. In that context, it has to strike us the tender care of the Lord that He shows to Mary here. As He, as it were, really goes out of His way to appear to her. Think about it for a moment. At this point, the tomb is not anymore the center of activity. Everybody is in Jerusalem at this point. That's where the center of goings on are right now. And you would think perhaps that the Lord wouldn't have much notice about what's going on at the tomb right now. There's just one person over there. All the others are over in Jerusalem. But the Lord displays a very tender compassion on Mary here. He could have said it to himself. The angels are still there at the tomb. And they can take care of Mary. They can tell her what has happened here. They can put an end to her confusion. She doesn't need me to go to appear to her. And besides, she's going to find out later that I appeared to the rest of the women and even to the others later in the day. But the Lord doesn't do that. He goes, as it were, out of his way to come to the aid of this poor, troubled lamb in the faith. That Easter Sunday morning, some of the disciples and followers of the Lord were perplexed. Some were downright unbelieving. Some are beginning to believe and starting to slowly understand 
But there's only one who is all alone weeping. And the Lord makes a point to come to her. Don't think, child of God, that the Lord fails to see your pain, your sorrow, your need, your confusion. Even if you feel all alone and that nobody else knows it, you're all by yourself. He sees, he knows, and he will minister to you in the way that you need by his word and spirit. He will. But Jesus' love for Mary will do more than comfort her. The Lord will also grow Mary in her understanding and her faith. And so he appears to her here this Sunday morning, not only to comfort her, to wipe away her tears, but also to apply mild, gentle rebukes to her, to grow her spiritually, to give her to understand what is happening. And this too is part of his careful and wise love for her as it's part of his careful and wise love for us too. Mary's faith is beautiful. Her dedication is commendable. Her faith is simple, but it's also in some ways weak, beloved, very weak, and it needs to be strengthened. The weakness of Mary's faith, you can begin to see in the answer that she gives to the question that Jesus himself puts to her in verse 15, when he says to her, Whom seekest thou? That was the Lord himself standing there asking her that question. But she answers, supposing him to be the gardener, Sir, if thou have borne him hence, tell me where thou hast laid him, and I will take him away. Mary does not recognize, though she looked right at him, the one that is before her is, in fact, the one for whom she is looking. And at least part of the reason why she does not recognize him is because Mary is not seeking a living Jesus. She's not seeking a risen king, but Mary is looking for a dead Christ. In fact, it's striking throughout the whole scene how all of her concern is focused on this dead body she will not be moved. She will not be swayed from searching for and finding the dead body. And there's a certain aspect of that that's commendable, of course. It's a sweet devotion that she has from one point of view. But from another point of view, there's a lack of faith there. Jesus had talked about his resurrection in his earthly ministry on more than one occasion. He had said, I'm going to Jerusalem to die, and I'm going to be raised again. And he even gave the time marker. The third day, I'm going to be raised again from the dead. He'd said it more than once, and she heard it. She was part of that band of women that followed him everywhere that he preached. She, along with the rest of the disciples, should have been looking for a risen Lord, not a dead Lord. But there's an aspect of her Lack of faith that maybe we could say is even above and beyond that of the other disciples at this point. 
Because it seems that though the signs are everywhere around her, Mary will not be shaken awake to the reality that he is not dead, but is risen. We almost get this picture of a, of a frantic Mary who, who through her tears and sobs is, is desperate. She's just looking for this body or any clue for where this body will be found. All the while, everything around her is screaming and pointing to the fact that he's not dead. He's alive. There's, there's flashing bulbs everywhere, a 360-degree view around her. He's alive. He's alive. And she won't see it. First of all, remember that she sees the empty grave and what's in that empty grave, just as Peter and John had saw it moments before this. She saw the grave clothes lying there. She saw the napkin lying apart by itself. But that doesn't shake her awake, doesn't even give her the thought that maybe he's risen. She's so focused on this dead body. Second, remember that these two angels are in the tomb talking to her. That doesn't even turn her mind to the resurrection. It's so striking in the text. Mary peers into the tomb and there are two angels there. And of course, we learn from other, the other accounts that more than likely those angels appeared in the form of men. Yet at the same time, we read that they're wearing all white. You would think that that would at least make a person stop and think. But it doesn't. Mary hardly pays any attention to them. She's so focused on the dead body and where's the dead body that it doesn't shake her. They ask her questions. And she kind of answers even as she's searching around. It doesn't even really shake her and stop her to think. Then third... Not even Jesus himself standing there shakes her. When Jesus appears to her, it says in verse 14 that she has to turn herself in order to look at him and talk to him. So she's facing inside the empty tomb. Jesus appears behind her and says, Who are you? Why weepest thou? Whom are you seeking? And she has to turn to look at him. But then notice what we read again in verse 16. That when they interact again, after he says Mary, she has to turn herself again. In other words, she glanced back at the Lord and then she went back again searching for the body. Do you know where his body is? And then without even waiting for an answer, she's, she's going back searching again or for some clues. She's so focused, single-mindedly focused on this dead body. Jesus is her Lord, but it seems like nothing will shake her from thinking that he's her dead Lord. Now look, the reason why Mary has this single-minded focus on the dead body it's because at this point, Mary is not seeking a sovereign 
king of the universe. She's looking for a martyr. When she's asked why she's crying by the angels, notice how she responds. They have taken my Lord, and I do not know where they have taken him. He's a victim. That's what she's looking for. She's looking for a victim. They have taken him. In Mary's mind, all she can see is that the chief priests and the scribes, those mean men, have gotten a hold of him and taken him, and now they've probably taken his body too, and she needs to find out where it is. In her mind, Jesus is no sovereign, conquering king. He is simply a victim at the hands of abusive power. Someone who has suffered a terrible injustice. And she can't get past the fact, how could they do this to him, to the one that she loved? And, let's be honest, she's kind of viewing herself as his mother hen. That he needs her now. She's been following him along. She's been making his meals. And now these men, men, mean men have come and, and they've taken him and they killed him. And she needs to find the body and she needs to get it back. And she need, he needs her. To the point where she tells Jesus, who she thinks is the gardener, tell me where his body is because I'm going to take... Can she carry a body? I'm going to take it and go bring it to where it needs to be. He needs me. In her mind, she hasn't gotten past his humiliation. He's merely a martyr for a cause. And she couldn't protect him through it, but now she can come and, and protect him, at least in his body. She doesn't understand that the Lord Jesus is no martyr. Oh, it's true that he's died unjustly. It's true that he was completely innocent. But there's so much more going on. He had willingly given himself to this cross. He had entered on Palm Sunday as King of Kings, Lord of Lords, to take that crown of thorns, to mount that throne of his cross. That's what he was after. He willingly laid down his life for the sheep. Mary saw the same thing that you saw on Good Friday night. Him crowned with thorns and hanging there upon that cross. But she did not see what you and I saw there. She saw defeat. At this point, she does not understand that here is victory in this cross. That he is Lord over sin and death. That he gave himself to this. That this was part of the plan. The plan from all eternity was being carried out. That he had come to earth for this. That this cross was the goal of his entire life. She doesn't understand that there on that cross where were her sins and our sins were dealt with. Mary knew her sins were taken away, but she didn't understand that the cross was how they were taken away. She's looking for a tragically slain hero. Not God made flesh who from eternity was decreed to conquer death in this way. 
And you see, it's for this reason that this question is put to her twice now at the tomb. Mary, why weepest thou? The angels ask her in verse 13. And, and then again, Jesus, the same question to her in verse 15. Why weepest thou? The question is gentle, but it's also meant to be a rebuke, a corrective. Wake up, Mary. And see everything around you and see what's going on here. There's no reason to weep. Why are you weeping? This is a day of rejoicing. This is a day of hope. While you're sitting here weeping, the angels in heaven are exalting and the just men made perfect are in rapturous joy at what has been accomplished. Hell's bars have been broken. Death has been conquered. I am risen, Mary. All of this was for the purpose of redemption, including your redemption. Rejoice, Mary. But not even those questions shake her awake. Nothing, it seems, can take away her blindness. Nothing, that is, except the sovereign, irresistible call of her risen Lord. Remember that in the resurrection of Christ, God manifests the Son of God with power, Romans says. It's the revelation that He is the Son of God who has all power. And now He will exercise that sovereign power as with the call of one word, His sovereign voice will make Mary to see everything that she has been blind to heretofore. He doesn't have to scream it. Just one word. Mary. And the sovereign call of God will draw the life from the seed of new life into her, into her mind and consciousness so that everything she has known becomes reality to her and she sees that he is alive and alive for her. This is a perfect example of what Jesus said he does as the good shepherd in John 10. He calleth his own sheep by name and they know him. John 10, 3 and 4, with one word, her name, Mary, the scales fall off. All the realization comes home to her and she sees he is the victor over sin, the death, and the grave. This is, beloved, an example of the combination of the external and the, ex and the internal call when it comes to one of God's own. It's power, sovereign, irresistible power. It's sweetness. It's personal character. As the voice of the Son of God, still today through the preaching of the Word, that goes forth from a pulpit, in some sense you might say impersonally, but taken by the Holy Spirit to the minds and hearts of God's own and calls them by name. You come to me. You see you out of darkness into light. And if you are here this morning, a believer 
who understands the resurrection and its implications for your own heart and life. It's not because you're smarter than other people. With all the signs flashing around you and all the knowledge of all the parts of the event all around you, you'd be as blind as Mary was if it was not for this call. But this call comes and brings it home and says it's real and it's yours. And if you're an unbeliever here this morning, then may it do that for you this morning. May it be that power to you. Maybe you've known many things about it. Maybe for a long period of your life. But it's not real to you. Come. and Believe in Him. Hear Him call. Believe in Me. I've risen from the dead and conquered sin, death, and the grave. Give Me your life. Find your hope in me. Mary, awakened by his call of her name, falls down and apparently grabs the Lord by his feet or wraps her arms around his legs so happy just to see him. And it's a wonderful reaction of love and faith. And yet, Mary must have an even deeper understanding of what's going on here. And so the Lord says to her, don't cling to me, Mary. The word is translated touch. Don't touch me, Mary. But it could better be translated cling. Don't cling to me. Don't hold on to me. The issue is not that the Lord couldn't be touched in his resurrection body. In a few verses, he's going to command Thomas to touch his resurrection body. The issue was that she was clinging to him, desperately holding on to him. Don't do that, Mary. Verse 17, For I am not yet ascended to my father, but go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascended unto, I, I do ascend unto my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. Jesus is saying two things to her there. First of all, he's giving her a word of comfort. Mary is clinging to the Lord because she doesn't want to lose him again. And so he says to her, I'm not yet ascended to my Father. Don't worry, Mary, I'm not going away right this moment. You're going to see me again. I'm going to be here amongst you for a little while. And yet at the same time, there is a further gentle bit of rebuke here because he adds, go and tell my disciples that I am ascending. And really, in the Greek, I'm in the process of ascending already. So that what he's saying is, there's time yet. Don't worry, I'm going to be, but I am going away, Mary. And you need to understand that. And you need to know what all of this is. Everything is different now, Mary. Our relationship is not the same any longer. Everything changes. My resurrection is not a resurrection back 
to the same life and to the same relationships. I am resurrected unto a higher existence. King of kings and Lord of lords. I'm merely, not merely a man. I'm God himself in human flesh. I've raised in power and might. And you need to grow to see what all of this means for you. Beloved of God, have you ever been Mary at the tomb? Don't mean by that at this point. Have you ever been at a portion of your life where you haven't understood the resurrection? Although maybe that too. But I mean, have you ever lived as though he's dead when he is in fact alive. I don't only want to apply this call of the Lord Jesus Christ to Mary this morning as the call from darkness into light, which we did a moment earlier, but I also want to apply this to the fact that that call constantly comes to God's people in their life over and over and over again and calls them to greater growth from a a place of weakness to strength or a weak area of their life to strength in that area of life. Have you ever taken in the cares and troubles and confusions of this life in such a way that it's as though he was not alive but dead. We have loved ones that pass away, die in faith, sometimes suddenly, sometimes strikingly, sometimes shockingly. Oh, it knocks us to the floor. Of course it does. And it's not wrong that it does. And of course, we weep and we sorrow and we weep together over this. But have you ever been in the position where it's as though you wept with no hope? There must be a great difference between the unbeliever who weeps at the loss of a loved one and who thinks that this is the end, or if they know anything, that something worse than the end has come. And the child of God who understands the hope of the resurrection and its implications for everything, including my dead loved one's body that is there and their soul that is now in glory. The Lord has risen. Don't weep as though he's dead. He's conquered sin, death, the grave. And perhaps he needs to come and ask us, Why are you weeping? Why are you weeping that way? I am alive. Don't you see? I've risen and conquered death. Have you ever been so burdened by the cares of this life that you're in the throes of despair? Maybe family struggles all of us can relate to. We're all prone to this too. When the heaviness of the difficulties of life come upon us. Maybe office bearers 
care for the church and all of the troubles and difficulties of the church and they weigh so heavily upon a person who hasn't been there as an office bearer in the church. Maybe a sickness or a disease or a pain. And you don't understand why this is here. And why this is here at this time, it doesn't seem to make any sense. Lord, I, don't, I can't have this right now. Or maybe it goes on and it doesn't allow you any relief. And the confusion and the pain and the difficulty. Or perhaps you have a good desire. A desire that you see is, is a desire that you should have. But it just doesn't seem to be fulfilled. God isn't answering my prayers the way that I want Him to answer. And how easy it is for us, beloved, to be like Mary at the tomb in our pain and in our confusion. To handle these things as though He's a dead Christ. As though He's not alive. As though he hasn't conquered sin, death, and the grave. As though he's not risen to the right hand of God and is in sovereign control over all things and rules over all for the good of his people. No matter what you bring with you to the house of God this morning, it does not merit being partitioned off from the power, the hope, and the joy of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it cannot exist in your life as though it is on its own over here, untouched by this reality and this hope and this joy. So that God's people are rejoicing in the hope of the resurrection And the angels in heaven are shouting for joy. But you can't see. You're searching as though for a dead Lord. Whatever the problem and difficulty is, beloved, and it may be heavy, and it's oh so real, And so are the tears. Your greatest problem has been taken care of. Death, sin, the grave, all been conquered. And because of that, it affects all of the other problems. All the other problems can be seen in the light of this. And though those problems remain real problems and difficulties for which you need help, don't fail to see them in the light of this hope that is so all-encompassing. He's risen. He's alive. He's at the right hand of God. And as He called Mary powerfully by His voice, He calls you through the Word. Believe it. And see its effect upon every aspect of your life. I'm alive. Why are you in despair? I'm victor over sin and death and the grave. And may the scales fall off. And the power of that light lighten even the darkest corners of your life. So that even through the tears you may rejoice with hope.
and then fall down before him. As Jesus called Mary with one powerful pregnant word, she responds with one pregnant word. Rabboni. It's a Hebrew word that means master. Master. What a wonderful response of faith because it shows that she gets it. She doesn't respond to seeing him and and to what he says to her. Go and tell them that I'm alive. She doesn't respond by by licking her thumb and getting the smudge off of his little cheek or here, let me make you a meal. But she falls down. Master, you're my Lord. I recognize things are different now. You're my king. Before you I bow. And that must be our response as well, beloved. Having come through this Lenten season of the year to the climactic point of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, what better way to respond to him than to fall down before him, my master, my king, who gives me hope and who rules my life. I'll serve thee for the rest of my days. Part of that service to the Master is what Jesus commanded Mary here. In verse 17, Go and tell my brethren and say unto them, I ascend to my Father and your Father and to my God and your God. Mary is called to go and to give witness of what she knows and better understands now in the victory of Jesus Christ. And in verse 18, she does go and fulfills that calling. And we too, knowing that he's risen, knowing what he's conquered, knowing the hope that he's given to us, knowing that he's the King of kings and the Lord of lords before whom we bow. Give voice. You have already in the songs that you've sung this morning. Give witness. Testify in your life. This is who he is. He's no dead savior. He's alive. And his life affects everything. Amen. Let us pray. Father, bless thy word to our hearing this morning. and Give us the hope, the all-comprehensive hope of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.